And right now, it is my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Jared Connolly. He's a dermatologist at Kaiser Permanente in Lafayette, Colorado, just outside of Boulder. And Dr. Connolly's interests include complex medical dermatology and high-risk systemic medications. He's chief of medical dermatology and the director of inflammatory dermatoses clinic. He is also managing the dermatology high-risk systemic medication surveillance team. Dr. Connolly is currently a member of the Colorado Dermatologic Society's executive team. Uh, please give him your attention and a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's a privilege to talk to you guys today about something I'm really passionate about. And my goal for you would be, after today, to have uh, a much higher level of confidence in managing patients on what we consider high-risk systemic medicines and also prescribing these medicines. So the objectives today, we're going to focus on the following medicines. Systemic retinoids, methotrexate, uh, biologics including tumor necrosis factor alpha antagonists and interleukin-12-23 inhibitors, as well as antimalarials, dapsone, uh, mycophenolate, mofetil, and azathioprine. For each of those medicines, we're going, to we're going to review the mechanism of action, the dose, pertinent drug interactions, adverse events, and uh, suggested lab monitoring. And then lastly, we're going to focus on the why for each medicine. Uh, this, I think, is the most critical part of the presentation. And what I mean by that is I want you to leave here today with an understanding of you know, why we prescribe a medicine or why we follow a certain lab test or why you should be worried about a certain potential side effect. I think one of the most dangerous things you can do in medicine is to do something or prescribe a medicine because you saw somebody do this before, or check a lab because somebody else did. And so, again, my goal for you today is to hopefully leave here understanding, okay, this is the medicine, these are the labs I need to follow, these are the side effects I, I need to be aware of, and why you should be aware of those things. So I have no uh, professional, excuse me, or financial disclosures, and we're going to get started. So our first group of medicines are systemic retinoids, and for the purpose of this talk, those are gonna include acetretin and isotretinoin. And the first thing we're gonna discuss about these are their mechanism of, of action. So retinoids bind to specific re receptors, and these are either called retinoic acid receptors, which are RAR on that slide, or rexinoid receptors, which are RXR. Upon the binding of the retinoid, the receptors uh, dimerize, meaning they kind of uh, buddy up with another receptor, and then they internalize. My whole reason for explaining this to you guys is sort of the first why point of these medicines in terms of why do they work. Uh, I know there are medicines that we prescribe commonly, but again, I want you to be aware of why we actually prescribe them. When the receptors dimerize, they internalize and bind to something called a retinoic acid response element, uh, which uh, that binding uh, is involved in the production of proteins that help re regulate cell growth, and differentiation. So if you think of a condition like psoriasis, which is a hyperproliferative state, you have a real thick red scaly plaque. If you prescribe a medicine like acetretin, uh, it works again to slow down cell growth, differentiation through the previously mentioned mechanism. The next thing we're gonna discuss about are the half-life and clearance times of these medicines, and really paying a lot of attention to the clearance times. So isotretinoin has a half-life of roughly 10 to 20 hours and a complete clearance time of roughly 30 days. 
Acetretin has a half-life of 50 hours and a complete clearance time of what we think is 30 days. There is a third oral retinoid called etretinate that has a half-life of 80 to 160 days and a complete clearance time of three years. So my second why point is, why on earth would I mention this? Uh, well, we commonly counsel patients on acetretin uh, to avoid alcohol. And the why point for this is acetretin in the presence of alcohol will actually convert itself to etretinate. Etretinate was available in the United States until 1998, and it was withdrawn from the market due to high risk of concerns over its possible side effects, namely its uh, ability to cause uh, birth defects like most retinoids do. So if you have a patient, specifically a female patient, especially if they are childbearing age, and you give them acetretin, uh, you have to really counsel them on the risk of, of drinking alcohol while they are on the medicine. Because if they have some alcohol and part of their acetretin is converted to etretinate, you then have a medicine that can linger for three years and cause those, those potential harmful effects uh, in terms of its teratogenicity. Dosing, something we're all pretty comfortable with. Acetretin is commonly prescribed 25 to 50 milligrams a day. Isotretinoin is usually at one half to one milligram per kilogram per day. Uh, you're probably aware these should be administered with food for best results. So one thing in general for adverse events, adverse effects and labs as, you, as we go through the talk is I tried to be relatively all-inclusive with what I listed. Uh, you guys are smart people. I'm not going to sit here and just read these off to you. Uh, they can certainly be reviewed at your own time. Specifically, we'll go over things that maybe are more prominent or more concerning or have a good teaching point. So here I've bolded uh, the highly popular side effects of retinoids maybe unmasking inflammatory bowel disease or causing depression or suicide attempts. We'll start with the risk of these medicines potentially unmasking inflammatory bowel disease. So in the literature, there are three papers that, that deal with this possibility uh, that are more than just isolated case reports. The first was a group out of the University of North Carolina where over a 20 plus year stretch of time, they looked at the number of reported cases and they had 15. They had uh, 12 isolated reports in one small case series. During that time, during that 23 year period of time, you would suspect to see 59 cases reported. So they made the conclusion at that time that there's insufficient evidence to support an association between isotretinoin use and inflammatory bowel disease. The next study was a group out of Canada and what they did through their national health care registry system was looked at, pa at patients who had a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease and were ever given a prescription for isotretinoin over the course of their life. This resulted in 1,960 cases and about 19,500 controls. And from their investigation, they found no increased odds ratio in terms of inflammatory bowel disease uh, in the presence of isotretinoin. A third study was again done by the same group out of the University of North Carolina, and they did a, took a similar approach to the Canadian study, although their uh, group that they wanted to focus on were patients who developed inflammatory bowel disease within one month, or excuse me, one year after being administered a prescription for isotretinoin. 
So you can see the number of cases and controls there. And the conclusions from this study was that there was an increased odds ratio or an increased risk for the development of ulcerative colitis, but not for Crohn's disease. And the number needed to harm was almost 3,000. So for every 3,000 patients that you give isotretinoin to, uh, maybe one could develop ulcerative colitis. The take-home point for these studies is these are what we call observational studies. They're not designed to uh, show proof, uh, like causality, but only association. So the take-home message from this type of a study is there is an association from this latter study that ulcerative colitis might be seen in higher rates of people on isotretinoin. But what you cannot say is that isotretinoin causes uh, ulcerative colitis in these patients. It could be related to other confounding factors, such as severe acne, or I'm sure most of you are aware of reports of tetracycline use being linked to inflammatory bowel disease as well. The next issue focuses on depression. There are a lot of reports out there. I chose to pick the most recent one uh, that was more than, again, an isolated report. This was a study done in Sweden, and in Sweden, isotretinoin is administered through a compassionate use uh, policy, so they have all sorts of information on patients in terms of their ages, their dose, how much of the medicine they had over time, um, and, and can link it to any other diagnosis in the system. And so what they did is they looked at patients who were given isotretinoin and never had a diagnosis of an attempted suicide attempt. And they looked at those patients from three years prior to their first prescription to up to 15 years after their first prescription. And what they saw is that the rate of suicide attempts in the study increased up and through the first six months of therapy. Uh, they found no increased risk if you had a prior history of suicide attempts, and there was no associated increased risk with dose, gender, or duration of therapy. Again, the number needed to harm here is one. Uh, so for every 2,300 patients that you administer that to, you could potentially have one suicide attempt. This, again, would have the same asterisks as the inflammatory bowel disease studies, and that these are designed to prove only an association and not a cause. One of the theories that they speculated in, the, in this paper was that maybe the increased risk of suicide attempts could be attributed to people uh, just as a result of having severe acne, or maybe those that have a suboptimal response to isotretinoin, and as a result feel maybe more overwhelmed So moving to drug interactions, there's a few that are pertinent that we'll review. So retinoids will decrease uh, the following medicines. So isotretinoin will decrease carbamazepine levels, which is an anti-epileptic, and acetretin can decrease progestin-only birth control pills, such as the mini pill. Both are important things to keep in the back of your mind, again, especially with our concern over the teratogenic effects of oral retinoids. If you have a medicine like acetretin that could decrease levels of birth control, you definitely would want to be aware of that. Uh, some miscellaneous interactions, tetracycline antibiotics increase the risk of pseudotumor cerebri in folks on isotretinoin, and we already discussed the issue of alcohol in, in folks on acetretin. So monitoring guidelines. Um, one point I just want to mention for this as we go through the talk is there's not a consensus on guidelines for a lot of medicines. If you look out there at different uh, textbooks, uh, different publications, there's definitely some discrepancy. So what I try to do is take uh, the intervals that have the most evidence and are most commonly cited and report those to you guys. 
Again, you're smart people. I'm not going to sit here and read these all to you. Uh, we'll point out certain things that are pertinent, uh, but want you to have this just for your own knowledge to reflect back on if needed. So as we all know with retinoids, we're going to look at the following things. We're going to look at liver enzymes. For folks on chronic retinoid therapy like an acetretin, uh, following their kidney function is a good idea. And then certainly lipids and pregnancy tests. So moving away from retinoids to methotrexate. The mechanism of action of methotrexate is that it works on uh, what we refer to as the folic acid pathway. Before we jump into the specifics of this, I just want to take a step back, have a real brief review of some basic kind of science. So DNA in its kind of most generic, most basic form, you have A's binding to T's and C's, G's binding to C's. More specifically, you have what we call purine nucleotides, which are A's and our G's and pyrimidines, which are our C's and our T's. There's one really big important point here, and that is that cells can produce DNA through two pathways. The first is a de novo pathway, meaning they just make it from scratch. The second is a salvage path pathway where they can basically take old DNA and incorporate it into the synthesis of new DNA. The reason this is important is that lymphocytes are one cell type that don't have the ability to use a salvage pathway. So if you're using a, a medicine like methotrexate, you're going to have lymphocytes, will, they will be preferentially inhibited uh, by this type of a medicine. So getting back to the actual pathway, methotrexate is going to work by inhibiting two enzymes, thimidylate synthetase and dihydrofolate reductase. There's a third enzyme on this list too we'll refer to later that's inhibited by dapsone, and that's dihydroterate synthetase. So let me actually go back here. The, the why point for this medicine would be, well, why do we give people folic acid in, in addition to their methotrexate therapy? So if we have this pathway and we're basically trying to, to shut it down as much as possible with methotrexate, there's sort of a fine line you walk where if you inhibit it too much, you're going to run into toxic effects of the medicine. So the evidence. Uh, for the administration of folic acid on days where you don't take methotrexate is there to help cause this pathway to maybe have some functionality uh, so you don't have complete inhibition of it. So that's our Y point, uh, one of the first Y points we have for methotrexate. In the event if you actually do have uh, complete inhibition or you develop toxic effects, there's a way to bypass this pathway. And that is through a medicine called folinic acid. It bypasses the enzymes that are inhibited by methotrexate, and you can get direct production of pyrimidine nucleotides. There's also a relatively new medicine that gained FDA approval in January, this past January. It's called glucarpidase. It's given in the setting of methotrexate toxicity uh, due to renal failure or uh, acute renal insufficiency, and that medicine directly will help break down methotrexate. So this slide here, I think of the whole presentation, might be the most important one because methotrexate is a medicine we prescribe commonly. And if you can understand these two points, uh, your knowledge and your ability to prescribe the medicine safely and effectively will be greatly enhanced. So the first of these is methotrexate can be free or protein bound. Free methotrexate is the active form of, of, of the medicine. So if you have too much that's active, again, you could have complete inhibition of the pathway and develop toxic effects. So we'll speak more about this in subsequent slides, but that's one important point. The second point is that methotrexate is eliminated by renal secretion. It's a weak or, uh, organic acid 
therefore competes in our body with other weak organic acids and other medicines as well. And again, if you if you're out competitive, if the methotrexate is outcompeted by an alternative uh, substrate, then you're going to have more methotrexate in your body, meaning more likely to get toxic. Dosing, you'll see a wide variation how to dose methotrexate. Commonly, a test dose is administered, usually 5 to 10 milligrams, checking labs four to five days after the dose. The sort of Y point for that is you can see a false elevation in your liver function test due to the actual um, administration of the medicine if, you, if it's checked too early. So four to five days is the recommended duration after dosage. And then we typically increase it two and a half to five milligrams per week, uh, depending on the patient, certainly in their own individual factors. Most people will max out at about 25 milligrams per week. Moving to the adverse effects of methotrexate, obviously the one we're always most concerned about is the effect on the liver. Some things you might not be aware of is this can occur in the setting of normal LFTs. And it's uncommon to occur with a cumulative dose of less than 1.5 grams. The next point we'll talk about uh, is the reproductive effects, uh, harmful reproductive side effects of methotrexate. It's category X. Uh, it's given to women who have uh, tubal pregnancies to induce a spontaneous abortion. And for men, it can decrease sperm counts transiently. There was a paper that came out here relatively recently that addressed the safety of methotrexate in male users uh, of the medicine. And they had 36 men that were on methotrexate at the time of conception or within three months leading up to conception. And the reason there's three months is it takes about three months uh, for a man to completely repopulate a sperm count, so you have to factor that in. They saw no, or no malformations uh, in these patients. However, their conclusion in this article was that Men on methotrexate should not impregnate women and should use condoms when sexually active. The reason for that is what we'll review in the next couple points here. Uh, they discussed the possible mutagenic potentials of methotrexate in this paper. The first being that you can see the drug actually in significant concentrations in seminal fluid. The only data we actually have on this comes from animal studies. Um, no human studies to date have been done. Uh, for the guys in the room, if they're looking for volunteers ever, you might want to pass up that option to be involved in that type of a study. Um, the second point, that uh, they had potential concern about the safety of its use in pregnancy is that it can mutate sperm, actually. Um, now, the data from this actually comes from human studies, and it does not actually appear to be a significant risk. And that data comes from cancer patients who were either given methotrexate or similar type medicines and then looking at their uh, reproductive habits after therapy. And they found no increased risk of malformations or any problems uh, attempting to conceive. So again, the conclusion from the paper was men should not try to impregnate women, should wear a condom, mainly for the fear from point number one, not necessarily from point number two. So adverse events, again, listed here. The one I really want to focus on are the hematologic side effects, again, because that relates back to some of the pharmacokinetic data we talked about. So we talked initially about free, the concentration of free methotrexate, and if something displaces it from protein, you have more of it. And that would specifically involve uh, the concern with different drugs or low albumin that are listed on that table. 
The issue of acute renal disease or having a decreased GFR would be related more so to the fact of point number two on our pharmacokinetic slide where it's a weak organic acid, it's eliminated by the kidneys, and if the kidneys aren't working well, you're gonna build that up. And then folate we've reviewed already. Other side effects listed there, uh, the one I would point out is the malignancy risk. There's actually a black box warning on methotrexate. Most people aren't aware of that. People um, have a bit of a knowledge gap in terms of that. The, the one good thing about um, these types of lymphomas that have been seen is the majority of them actually resolve with discontinuing the drug, um, but still it is a black box warning. So drug interactions, again, this is gonna focus heavily on that pharmacokinetic slide again. So there are basically two columns of drugs we're worried about, those that displace methotrexate from albumin. And I highlighted the ones that we commonly see in our patients are medicines we actually prescribe as well. So those would be salicylates, tetracyclines, retinoids, and sulfonamides, which would be things like furosemide, hydrochlorothiazide, sulfasalazine. The second category are drugs that essentially outcompete methotrexate for secretion uh, from the kidneys. And again, those being salicylates, sulfonamides, and NSAIDs. So really and truly, again, if you can remember that first slide and those two points and incorporate these other points that we reviewed uh, and relate it to those two facts, your knowledge and your ability to prescribe the medicine safely is, again, greatly enhanced. So monitoring guidelines, the, the kind of why point I just wanted to point out here is albumin. It's, it tends not to be a lab that's followed by a lot of people. Uh, we now know why we do it. If someone naturally has low albumin due to poor nutrition or decreased liver function, uh, that's gonna really factor in and you can overdose people. So a really kind of controversial topic or one where people have uh, a lot of questions or anxiety about or well, when do I do liver biopsies for people? Initially, we would tell people about every 1.5 grams, they should have a liver biopsy. And if they had a couple that were normal, then maybe we could space it out to every three grams. That was uh, drastically different than our rheumatology colleagues who commonly prescribe methotrexate uh, for rheumatoid arthritis predominantly. And the reason there was this discrepancy was it seemed like uh, psoriatic patients had a higher risk of hepatotoxicity from methotrexate. So there was some concern as maybe there was this inherent tendency uh, for folks with psoriasis to develop hepatotoxicity. What we've learned over time is psoriatic patients are much more likely to be obese, have high, lip, high lipids, be diabetic, and if you control for those factors, uh, the discrepancy between patients with RA and patients with psoriasis goes away. So it's now recommended that we use the same guidelines as the rheumatologist. And those basically are, there is a set, a set of risk factors, and patients should be categorized into low risk or high risk, depending on the presence or absence of these risk factors. So the factors are here on this page. The first one, the reason there's an asterisk there is, you have to take into consideration someone's lifetime history. If someone was a heavy drinker for 20 years and they stopped 10 years ago, they're gonna be a high risk, they're gonna have this high risk factor, even though they currently do not drink. The other factors are persistently elevated LFTs, a history of liver disease or hepatitis, a family history of inheritable disease, liver disease, uh, being diabetic, being obese, being exposed to hepatotoxic drugs or chemicals, uh, or having high lipids. So for low-risk patients, which are those that do not have any risk factors, and that from that previous slide, uh, a baseline liver biopsy is not recommended. You should monitor LFTs every month for the first six months, 
And then there's a little bit of a leeway every one to three months thereafter. You should perform liver biopsies if five of nine LFTs over the course of a 12-year period are elevated, uh, or if they have a decrease in their albumin despite normal nutrition, or once they get around three and a half to four grams of their cumulative dose. Once you do reach that last point, it's recommended that you look for an alternative therapy. So high-risk patients are those that have any of the factors from, the, from two slides ago. Uh, it's recommended to consider uh, using a different agent. doesn't mean you have to. Uh, it's recommended that you consider a baseline liver biopsy. Uh, again, with, if you do decide to do that, waiting to see can they tolerate the medicine and is it effective before you subject them to that type of a procedure. And then doing liver biopsies kind of at the old recommendations about every 1.5 grams. So moving from methotrexate to our biologics, uh, specifically, we're going to talk about the TNF-alpha antagonists, which will be etanercept, adalimumab, and fliximab, and then our IL-1223 inhibitor, ustekinumab. So this schematic here is kind of our working knowledge of the pathophysi pathophysiology behind psoriasis, and it's changing constantly. But I'm a simplistic guy, I like to look at things very simplistically, so kind of dumbed down or in a nutshell, uh, essentially what happens here is, sorry about that. The top left corner there you have what's called a Langerhans cell, and a Langerhans cell is stimulated in psoriasis for reasons which seems to be unclear. As a result of that, uh, you'll get production of interleukin 12 and 23, which stimulate T cells which as a result stimulate the stuff in that red box, which are a bunch of genes that are involved in, in cell growth and differentiation, so increasing those factors. As well as at the bottom of the screen, you see the blood vessel, there are some factors involved in angiogenesis. So the why point for these medicines is why would we use them in this crazy schematic? And that's because upstream we can have some inhibition of some important compounds, and that would be tumor necrosis factor alpha, which is far upstream, and then interleukin-1223. So next, we'll focus on the mechanism of action of these. There's a lot of anxiety around these medicines. You know, they have funny names. The side effects seem kind of bizarre at times, and, and people are hesitant to prescribe them. What I want you to notice is there's actually a nomenclature that explains the, the madness behind this. And if you can understand the nomenclature, you'll feel much more comfortable uh, prescribing these, understand how they actually work. So the first we'll talk about is infliximab. Infliximab is what we call a chimeric monoclonal antibody, meaning that in the antibody you have part of it that is human-derived and part of it that is derived from a mouse. So the blue part, it comes from a human. That's considered the constant region. It tends to be very similar between different immunoglobulins. The tips, which are red, come from a mouse, and that determines the specificity of what this immunoglobulin binds. In this case, it's set to bind tumor necrosis factor alpha. So you have infliximab, or MAB, which literally stands for mouse antibody. <clears throat> Moving to etanercept, as you can see, it ends with sept. So we have the same thing. We have a constant region coming from a human, and then we have, instead of an immunoglobulin tip, we actually have a receptor. So the sept for receptor. And then the last one, is adalimumab, which is, has the MAB part, but in front of that is a U. And the U means it's hum comes from a human. So the tips, as you can see, are not red on this one. They are blue. Um, so knowing these factors here helps you can understand, again, how these work, 
and sort of take away some of the mystique around the naming of these medicines. So dosing, all these medicines are dosed in a similar way. You typically give people a loading dose followed by maintenance therapy. So infliximab is, is commonly dosed at five to 10 milligrams per kilogram. You load people, you give them their first infusion, two weeks later you give them another, six weeks later you give them another. And then maintenance-wise, it's every eight weeks thereafter. Etanercept, the loading dose is 50 milligrams twice a week for the first three months, followed then with 50 milligrams weekly dosing. And adalimumab is loaded by giving people 80 milligrams, so two injections at week zero, then one week later, another injection, and then thereafter, 40 milligrams, so one injection every two weeks. So the adverse events that are associated with TNF-alpha inhibitors are listed here. We're gonna talk about the malignancy one first, so there is a concern for lymphoma and a black box warning on these medicines for lymphoma risk for pediatric and adolescent patients. There's only actually, at this point, a warning statement for adult patients. A uh, relatively newer malignancy report is maybe in association with increased risk of basal cell and squamous cell in these patients. That data comes from the rheumatology literature. And it's, it's interesting data. Um, there are definitely potentially at least some concerns that are the uh, basal cells and squamous cells, and specifically squamous cells seen in these patients related to previous therapies, uh, things like PUVA, which is known to cause uh, increased risk of squamous cell. But it's interesting, I think, more to come on these at this point. In terms of the infection risk, there was a great paper, actually two great papers that came out here in the last year or so. And they came to the conclusion of, in patients who are healthy or not on other immunosuppressants, that there is not an increased risk of serious infection, meaning those infections that will hospitalize an individual. Uh, and folks on tumor necrosis factor alpha medicines compared to those who are not. Uh, obviously, under infections, always concerned about a reactivation of tuberculosis. So again, for completeness sake, uh, more side effects listed here. Uh, concern maybe of causing demyelinating diseases like multiple sclerosis, drug-induced lupus, exacerbating uh, CHF. And then even though these are category B, there's reports of causing a set of syndrome, or a syndrome called Bacterial Syndrome, which uh, is right here. So it's a different set of malformations that commonly occur together. So in the setting of a lady who's pregnant, uh, it's something you have to take into consideration. And if the, like most things, if the benefits outweigh the risks, maybe it's worth the risk. But uh, definitely some caution, even though they do have category B at this time. So in terms of monitoring, another question that comes up a lot, well, what labs should I check? Uh, there was a great paper that came out in 2008, and it was uh, a group of folks across the nation who are just gurus for psoriasis, and they reviewed the, the literature and the evidence behind that literature for checking different labs, things like CBCs, LFTs, creatinine, uh, PPDs, and the consensus from there is that the only lab that has consistent recommendation would be screening for tuberculosis. Um, they did make a statement of this should be managed on a patient-by-patient -patient basis. So if you have someone who you're concerned about, maybe they already have liver disease and you're concerned about that, then you can follow it. They did not give any recommendations in terms of how frequently you should follow for non-tuberculosis type testing. Safety-wise, yeah, this, these are immunosuppressants. You would never want to give someone a live vaccine. Flu shots are okay. The flu mist is not. Uh, and we talked about the pregnancy category.
So ustekinumab, agonist is a umab, like we saw with adalimumab. So it's human. It binds something called P40, which is a common subunit that holds interleukin-12 and 23 together. So by using one medicine, you can get dual inhibition. And those, those two cytokines, interleukin-12 and 23, are involved in uh, keratinocyte proliferation and, in, and the production of other inflammatory cytokines. The dosing for this, again, there is a loading dose and there is maintenance, and it's based on people's weight. Uh, so for folks under 100 kilos, you load them with 45 milligrams on week zero. Four weeks later, they get another one, and then 12 weeks later, they get another one. And from there, it's every 12 weeks. For people over 100, it's a similar dosing regimen, but it's 90 milligrams instead of 45. In terms of adverse uh, effects similar to TNFs, um, you know, less is known about these since it's a relatively new medication. The one thing I wanted to point out here is this uh, entity called reversible posterior leukoencephalopathy syndrome. This is uh, an entity that has really nonspecific findings, you know, headache, uh, maybe some malaise, seizures, confusion. It has a classic MRI finding, and the treatment for the most part is just supportive therapy and stopping the offending medicine. Uh, but there is a report of that in folks on uh, ustekinumab. Similar safety side effects uh, that we saw, or so safety profile, excuse me, as we saw in people on tumor necrosis, tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitors. So moving from biologics to antimalarials, this will include hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, and quinacrine. Uh, the mechanism for these, it's, it's kind of unknown. We know some things. They have an anti-inflammatory effect. Um, and it's thought to have some UV protection effects, specifically how for these is a bit up in the air. So dosing for these, hydroxychloroquine is commonly dosed 200 to 400 milligrams a day. Uh, max dose should be roughly 6.5 uh, milligrams per kilogram per day. Chloroquine is commonly dosed at 250 milligrams. You can go up to 500 milligrams a day. And max dose should be 3 mg per kg per day. Quinacrine, it's sort of set dosing, 100 milligrams and 200 milligrams a day. In terms of adverse events, the, the one we're always the most concerned about are ocular effects, and specifically uh, the, the concern for retinopathy because it is irreversible. Early findings of retinopathy include something called a paracentral scotoma, which is uh, this kind of visual field defect that's just off to the center of your visual field. Late findings would be actual changes in one's visual acuity. And again, these are irreversible, so early detection is key. Other side effects, other ocular side effects, thankfully, are reversible, and those include uh, corneal deposition of the medicine, which people will have uh, uh, perceive this as, as lights or halos of lights when they're looking at something. Not a contraindication. You can certainly continue therapy if needed. And then the loss of accommodation of the eye. So these risks are greatest with chloroquine, uh, and with quinacrine, there's well, there's basically no risk. Other adverse events listed here, the one I would point out uh, for sort of a Y point would be the risk of hemolytic anemia, which we'll talk about here in the next few slides, and also this risk of GI side effects. It's actually really common in antimalarials, so about 10% of people will have uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and at times it can uh, be an intolerance to the medicine where you just have to look for an alternative therapy, so it's definitely a, a prominent side effect. So there are new guidelines that came out for screening people on antimalarials uh, for visual changes. And we used to do it without a lot of evidence, you know, maybe once a year, maybe twice a year, and there was just a lot of uncertainty. This is a great paper. 
and I would encourage you all to, to find a copy of it and keep, it, keep a good hold of it. Essentially what the new guidelines say is everyone needs a baseline exam, and then for most people, annual exams after, after five years uh, of therapy. The reason for that is the old guidelines were set more so with a concern of daily dosing, so for something like uh, hydroxychloroquine, six and a half milligrams per kilogram per day. The new guidelines stress more of a cumulative effect of the medicine, um, and so the shift was then towards a cumulative dose. So 1,000 grams of hydroxychloroquine, which is about seven years of taking 400 milligrams, per, uh, 400 milligrams a day, or 460 grams of chloroquine, uh, which is about five years of taking 250 milligrams a day. Still concerned for higher daily dosing. The, the, the one drawback or setback here at the guidelines is they didn't really specify this. They said this was a concern for patients of short stature. And that's all they said. They didn't really comment much more on that. So however you interpret that um, is, I guess, up to you. And then other risk factors certainly being elderly patients or patients with previous retinal disease. <clears throat> disease. <clears throat> so monitoring guidelines uh, are listed here. The one I want to focus on and kind of the why point is uh, uh, checking out something called a G6PD or glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase. There's a bit of some controversy on this. There's some data out there to suggest that for these specific type of anti-malarial medicines uh, that this is not needed. Some folks still do, so for completeness sake, I thought we would review it. The reason we check a G6PD or the why point for this is, in, is based on this pathway here. So we have this pathway within our red blood cells that relies on this enzyme called glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase. And it will produce antioxidant-type products. And these are important because they help to stabilize our red blood cell membrane. So in somebody who is glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficient, they don't make these antioxidants, their red cells are more fragile, and you can get hemolysis and a hemolytic anemia as a result of that. So moving to dapsone, kind of like uh, the anti-malarial is a little unknown why it works. It has uh, ability to inhibit neutrophils and eosinophils, and it inhibits the folic acid pathway like we saw back when we talked about methotrexate. Uh, dapsone is usually dosed anywhere between 50 to 200 milligrams a day. The adverse effects and the ones that are really the most pressing or mo most concerning are those that affect the hematologic system. And those can include uh, leukopenia, and agranulocytosis, which occurs most commonly in the first three months of therapy, uh, three to four months of therapy, and, and definitely high risk in the first eight weeks, uh, a hemolytic anemia, and then something called methemoglobinemia. So the why point for this one is why you should be concerned about methemoglobinemia, especially if you have patients on dapsone or you prescribe this medicine. Methemoglobin is a type of hemoglobin that cannot release oxygen that it binds. Uh, and the significance of this is if somebody is symptomatic, they're short of breath, they're fatigued, they're tired, uh, they're having chest pain, and you check a hemoglobin level, it could come back normal. And if you don't follow it by checking a met hemoglobin level, you don't have all the story. So an example would be somebody with a hemoglobin of 10, and they come in, again, symptomatic. If you don't check a met hemoglobin level, you would, might say, depending on where you live, 10 for Colorado might be on the, on the low side, uh, but you might say, okay, things look good. But in, in someone, let's say their met hemoglobin level is 20%, their functional hemoglobin level is only eight. So people that are symptomatic, uh, short of breath, chest pain, fatigued, 
I would highly encourage you to check a methemoglobin level. Adverse events, uh, you'll see this carried over as we talk about a few medicines here. Dapsone is specific, has a specific adverse event, something called a hypersensitivity reaction. It's kind of like a you know, super amped up drug rash that can have systemic symptoms along with it. it. Happens most common early in therapy. People feel like they have the flu, they're cold, they're achy, they're, they're usually nauseous, they usually have a transaminitis. And if detected early, treatment is just stopping the drug and supportive therapy. Can consider steroids uh, in extreme cases. Um, you know, this can progress and patients are hospitalized and, and treated uh, potentially like a, a Stevens-Johnson TEN case. Another um, side effect to be aware of with folks on Dapsone is it can cause a motor neuropathy, commonly seen uh, in more distal muscles. So a lot of th things are times when we have patients come in, we'll have them walk on the tips of their toes to make sure they have good strength in their lower leg muscles. And then the few others that are up there that we'll just leave for now. So drug interactions, um, pertinent ones are going to be drugs that, that act on that folic acid pathway, as we already saw with methotrexate. So methotrexate being one of them, trimethoprim uh, being another, and then sulfonamides would be ones you'd want to avoid. Again, if you used methotrexate and dapsone at the same time, you could totally shut down that folic acid pathway, and people can get really sick. The second class are drugs that increase the risk of hemolysis, or methemoglobinemia. Uh, and these are all drugs that cause an increased risk of oxidative stress on our body. Sorry about that. My hands get a little carried away. Um, so as we saw back with the antimalarials, the uh, glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase pathways produces antioxidants. If you increase the oxidative, oxidative stress, you've consumed all those, and you're more likely to get hemolysis and methemoglobinemia. So monitoring guidelines are, are listed up here. The one thing I really want to point out to you is under the follow-up there, you know, you're checking CBCs pretty frequently, especially at first. It, it's normal for patients to have about a two gram per deciliter drop in their hemoglobin. That, that's almost to be expected. And the reason for that, or the why point for this one is, our red blood cells are of different ages. Some are brand new, some are old. And Dapsone has a tendency to take our older ones and help them uh, go through a process of hemolysis quicker than what would na uh, naturally happen. So typically that two gram drop is the result of old red cells being cleared from our system. Um, it's helpful when you're following these CBCs to have that knowledge because just about everyone will drop uh, and, and knowing not to overreact when you see that is key. Anything, you know, two grams or more, certainly in the, in the presence of symptoms, you'd want to investigate that further. And that would be using the labs there under the PRN category. So checking a uh, reticulocyte count to make sure they're repopulating their red cells, checking methemoglobin levels as we already talked. Um, and I threw motor exams there just as a reminder that this can cause a motor neuropathy. So the second to last medicine we're gonna talk about is mycophenolate mofetil. Unlike uh, methotrexate, methotrexate inhibits pyrimidine nucleotides, this inhibits purines. And it does so by inhibiting this enzyme here, IMP dehydrogenase. So again, it's one of these that are going to preferentially inhibit uh, lymphocytic function because they don't have that salvage pathway. It's usually dosed two to four grams a day, and it's administered twice a day, so you half your dose. The kind of why point for this is why, why doesn't this medicine usually work when you prescribe it? And for most people, it's, it's just slow, so you have to give it a lot of time. You know, I, I tell most of my patients, don't expect much improvement for at least three months. And if they get some improvement prior to that, great. Uh, if not, 
they're not discouraged at the lack of progress. It also commonly needs to be dosed at sort of the higher end of the spectrum to see a lot of the good improvements in the three to four gram range. Uh, so just something to keep in mind that may need high doses, probably is gonna take a long time to work. Drug interactions here, uh, this one can reduce levels of birth control pills containing uh, levnogesterol, so there's some examples of those right there. So this is a category X medicine, so that kind of like what we saw with acetretin is an important thing to remember. The side effects listed here, actually the GI side effects like we saw with anti-malarials are, are fairly prominent. Uh, it's the most side effect in this medicine. A lot of times when I'm dosing people, I'll start them low for the first you know, two weeks to maybe four weeks and then increase from there. So maybe I'll just do two grams a day for the first two to four weeks and then increase if needed as a result of the, the uh, side effect of nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. There are cases of, of PML virus uh, in folks on this medicine, something just to be aware of, not to scare you, but just to make you aware. The monitoring guidelines, again listed here, you're going to check blood counts, liver enzymes, and creatinine, and the recommended intervals from the literature are on this slide and included with your CD. And the last medicine is azathioprine. Azathioprine, uh, in terms of its mechanism of action, is kind of a neat little complex system here. So azathioprine, when we take it, is converted into something called 6-mecaptopurine, and then 6-MP can go down one of three paths. It can go to the anabolic path where it's acted on by an enzyme called hyposanthine guanine phosphoribotyl transferase, and it's converted to the active ingredient, which is 6-thioguanine. That's where all the beneficial effects of the medicines come from. There's also two catabolic pathways, one xanthine oxidase, and the other is something called thiopurine methyltransferase. This is a really delicate balance, as we've seen with other medicines, because if anything shifts this pathway, let's say you're deficient in uh, thiopurine methyltransferase, you're gonna shift more towards the anabolic side, again, have more active drug, more potential for toxic side effects. So specifically talking about these, uh, catabolic pathways, thiopurine methyltransferase, there's a lot of polymorphisms out there. Uh, they're quite numerous. You should always check it as a result of that. In general, patients who are Chinese tend to have higher levels than patients who are Caucasian than patients who are African Americans. But still the recommendation is, is you should always check it. Xanthine oxidase is inhibited by allopurinol. If someone is on allopurinol, it's typically recommended you, you select a different therapy. Dosing of azathioprine is usually one to three milligrams per kilogram per day. It's given twice a day. And adjustments in the actual dosing range are based on your thiopurine methyltransferase level. And your lab will give you a cutoff in terms of what they consider high level, medium level, and low. These are the cutoffs that our lab has. Adverse effects, azathioprine, like we saw with Dapsone, has a hypersensitivity uh, reaction, occur, occurs early in the course, again, flu-like symptoms, people have systemic symptoms. It has more of an erythema nodosum type rash compared to Dapsone, which is more your classic morbilliform eruption. The other pertinent side effect I wanted to review here is the risk of uh, non-melanoma skin cancers. And sort of the why point for this is if, if you see transplant patients, especially trans transplant patients who are on azathioprine, you know, think what their skin looks like. They tend to have a lot of skin cancers. And the reason for that is azathioprine is actually mutagenic. Uh, so you combine that drug plus something like ultraviolet light, uh, which can also be mutagenic, and you have a significant increase uh, risk in skin cancers.
So drug interactions, a lot of this we've talked about. So allopurinol uh, is going to inhibit xanthine oxidase. Sulfasalazine is going to inhibit thiopurine methyltransferase. ACE inhibitors, and especially older uh, classes of ACE inhibitors, have a risk of neutropenia. You have a medicine here that can uh, cause neutropenia or pancytopenia for that matter. And the thought is combining older ACE inhibitors with azathioprine could increase that risk. And then warfarin, azathioprine will decrease the levels of warfarin. So our monitoring guidelines, again, you should always check a thiopurine methyltransferase. You're going to follow blood counts, liver counts, and, and creatinine closely. And that is it. I'm happy to take questions. I put my email up there. If, yeah, you think of something later, you're reading through the handouts, you have questions, feel free to email me. Uh, if we don't talk today and you just prefer to send an email, that's fine as well. But thank you for having me, and I appreciate your attention. I, I, so the question was, do I think drug holidays are necessary in something like methotrexate? And my attitude or my approach I take when I'm treating any chronic disease is, first thing is get people better, uh, and then slowly go down on their dose to see how they do. You know, what's the minimal amount of medicine they need? Uh, ideally, if you can get them off for a while and transition them uh, to something like a topical therapy, I think that's fantastic. Uh, I think the issue of drug holidays, though, is an individual's uh, preference. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. Obviously, the longer you have somebody on methotrexate, the higher their cumulative dose goes up, and you know, that, becomes, um, that increases the risk of you, you running out of the luxury of using that as a therapy once you get to that cumulative dose. So again, my approach is to get people clear, get them on the minimal amount of medicine there, and ideally transition them off systemic therapy once they have improved. Other questions? All right, guys, thank you.